And yes, they want a bestseller, but but they also might do well with what Virginia Woolf called an echo. Maybe just another person saying, boy, that, that mattered to me a little bit. That has to count. Welcome to the Find Your Voice podcast, a show where we believe in the power of the written word to create positive change in your personal life, your community, and the world. I'm your host, Allison Fallon. Whether you're an aspiring author or someone who swears they're not a real writer, we're here to show you how a regular practice of writing will help you access your intuition, make an impact, and find your voice. Join me for interviews with authors, writing prompts, and stories of how even simple words change lives. On today's episode of the Find Your Voice podcast, I want to start by asking a question. Do you feel like you matter? Like, really matter? And if you do feel like you matter, how do you know that that's true? Today's guest is a man who argues that one way to know we matter, to really know, is to do a thing that I've been telling you to do for a long, long time, and that is to write. But not just write. What today's guest talks about is having a daily practice of creativity, like writing, that brings you back to this same conclusion every day. I matter. My words matter. In fact, he says one of the main reasons why people fall away from their creative work is that they actually forget that they matter. Ironically, he says it's coming back to our creative work that does the best to remind us how much we matter. And the best encouragement we can give to ourselves when we fall away from our daily practice is this. Simple. You matter. On today's episode, I talked to Dr. Eric Maisel, the author of over 50 books, a renowned coach to creatives, a columnist for Psychology Today, and mental health advocate. His latest book, The Power of Daily Practice, teaches artists and creative people how to overcome blockages so they can finally meet their goals. So if you're an artist or a writer, but you keep thinking to yourself that you don't have the discipline to follow through on your creative dreams, you aren't going to want to miss what Eric has to share with you today. Maybe more discipline isn't what you need at all. As for what you do need, well, I'll let Eric tell you himself. Welcome to the Find Your Voice podcast, Eric Maisel. Great to be here. So this podcast is called Find Your Voice. The first question that I always ask every person that we interview is, what does that phrase mean to you? What does find your voice mean to you? You know, it's interesting because I've been spending a lot of time over the years uh, trying to explain certain paradigm shifts, the shift from finding meaning to making meaning and there being Mm -hmm. a purpose to life to there being only our life purpose choices. So I guess I would I would want to play with the phrase find your voice and change it to create your voice. Mm-hmm. That there's nothing to find exactly, that we shouldn't be out on a search for something. We should sort of stay put and create whatever is necessary for us to create. Connects to the idea that we'll chat about about daily practice, about just staying put and doing the work. But that's what comes up for me when I hear the phrase, find your voices. Like so many things in life, I want to change it. <laughs> to yeah. Your voice. 
No, I love that because I do think there's a there that's inherent, even though we often it's such a commonly used phrase to say find your voice. I think the I would agree with you that the process of doing that is really more of an act of creation than it is an act of discovery. Yeah, yeah. it is. Or detective that's, work. I don't think it's detect I don't think we need detective work in life. We need to speak in our own voice. Yes. Yeah, almost like like I just got the image in my head of like standing firm, like choose, choosing that this is the voice you're going to use for yourself right now or whatever. It's a little bit more active than passive. Yeah, and also I know I know we're off in a strange place already, but even if you want to speak in your own voice, it's possible that you have to stay silent because of circumstances. What I'm actually thinking of are like resistance fighters in the Second World War. They couldn't yeah. walk down the street saying, I'm against you, Nazis. <laughs> they, had to, sure. they had to be circumspect. So even yes. when we create our own voice, we still have to figure out when and how to speak. And that's a big issue for human beings, figuring out when and how to speak. That's so important. Okay, so I kind of want to circle back around to that a little later, but I, because that feels like a, a rabbit trail that we could go down, a good one. <laughs> But I want to back up a little bit and talk about your work because you've been working with creatives for the last 30 years. And and I want to start by asking you, what, is, what does it mean to you to call someone a creative person? Well, I think it's, it's an identification that you've come up with almost always because you fell in love with something as a kid. Hmm, you fell in yeah. love with reading. You were sitting there in a corner reading a book at the age of five or six or seven, and you didn't know you were going to be a writer, but you were going to be a writer. Because yeah. nothing more powerful in life, nothing more important in life, nothing more beautiful in life than that book. Yeah, that resonates with me. I knew from a from the time I was a very young age that I wanted to write. So you have a new book out. It's called The Power of Daily Practice, which I love because we talk a lot about creating a daily practice of writing with the writers that we work with. Can you give us a little teaser for the book? Sure. I've written lots of books for creative performing artists, and there always seems to me to be some little gap left or some big gap left in the conversation. And the gap that this book closes is the following one. If you don't do your work for some consecutive days, let's pick a number, three or four days, you tend to lose weeks, months, years, and decades. Mm. That's That's the problem that this book is addressing, losing huge chunks of time to not working. Yeah. And that's everybody's experience in the arts that when they skip a little bit of time, they look up and six months have gone by and that's the last time they were in the studio or the last time they picked up their guitar. So the idea of daily, I want to underline the word daily. There's a reason why I'm calling it daily practice and not just practice. Practice is important in and of itself, but daily practice is important because it's about the only way to ensure that you won't lose decades. Yeah, th- uh, I, this might be a little bit of a non sequitur, but I had a friend, I recently had a baby, so I think a lot of things have changed for me. But <laughs> before I had a baby, I used to be a person who did a, had a daily yoga practice. And I had a yoga instructor say to me once that people tend to stop coming to yoga when they stop wanting to change. And for whatever reason, that phrase has always stuck with me. And I've, I've, there are also a lot of parallels between a daily writing practice and a daily yoga practice and any other kind of daily practice. But I'm wondering if you have thoughts about that, if you agree with her or disagree, and yeah, just what your reflections are on that phrase. Well, yeah, I'm not I'm not sure if it's about change with respect to creative performing artists. The late Pavarotti has a quote I like, which is, people say I'm disciplined, but it's not discipline, it's devotion. 
and mm. it's a difference. I think people aren't devoted enough to their work, and they think it's about discipline, that they aren't disciplined enough, but they actually don't consider that they and their efforts matter enough. It's at that devotion yeah. place, that passion place, that mattering place, that caring place. You can't white-knuckle a novel very easily. You can't just show up every day with discipline. There are some things in life that maybe you can do out of discipline or or just because you have to do them. You know, the baby cries. There are things you have to do. Mm -hmm. But with with respect to creating performing artists, they don't have to do that stuff. They can skip it, and they do. They regularly skip it. Yeah. So I'm not sure. If we're talking about personality stuff, and I talk a lot about personality upgrade, then that phrase resonates more about change and the consequences of change and the real difficulties of change. But with mm. respect to creating performing artists, I don't think it's about change. It's about a lack of the felt belief that they matter. Wow. That feels really powerful. I talk to writers all the time about one of the most common pieces of pushback that I get from writers is about discipline. It's almost like comical how similar the statement will be, but people will say to me, you know, I just don't have the discipline to to write a book or whatever. And I just say like, I actually had not heard that quote before, but I will often say to them, like, there's just no such thing as a person who doesn't have enough discipline. If you, you know, if, if anything calls to your attention loudly enough, you will respond to it just like you're saying with the crying baby. So we find the discipline for things that we have to find the discipline for, but I've just never seen my creative work as something that requires discipline. It, exactly. I don't like that word. Exactly. Can you talk about the difference between discipline and devotion? Cause I love replacing it with devotion. I'm not sure exactly how, how to say it. Let, let me give you maybe a bit of an analogy. Okay. Uh, in the days before D-Day, we don't really care if Eisenhower is in a black mood or is feeling anxious or, mm. <laughs> is in some ways not disciplined. None of that matters. We just need him to get the invasion right because nothing on earth in that moment is more important than getting that invasion right. Mm-hmm. And we know that it, it's it's out of, he may or may not be a disciplined person, most military folks are, but we know that he's devoted to the enterprise, including devoted to, how to say it, the, the understanding that he's going to be losing tens of thousands of men in a few days, that they're going to die mm. in a few days. And there's something devotional about that. There's something, I don't hate to use the word spiritual exactly, but there's something different from discipline that's going on when you're on a mission. Yeah. And I invite folks to think more like they're on a mission in life that their life Mm -hmm. matters that way, that they have their own D-Days. Now, it's very hard to think that the photograph you're taking or the the song you're creating is like D-Day, and yet we we have to don that mantle of meaning maker. We have to decide that we are making meaning or we're trying to coax meaning into existence in life, and that that unless we do, we're going to experience life as meaningless. Meaning's not out there somewhere. It's something we get to create or make or coax into existence. Yeah. Yeah. So if it's if that's what's keeping people from showing up to their daily practice of their whatever their form of art is, how do we how do we overcome that obstacle? How do you get past that speed bump? Well, there's the so to speak mechanical or practical way of holding the intention to show up every day and showing up. 
sort of the, let's say, the disciplined way. <laughs> yeah. That way. But I think the starting place is to announce out loud, and I have people write these things in huge letters around the house, is to announce that I matter. Uh, and and to and then go quiet. Just to be with I matter and my efforts matter. Yeah. That, that's really the place of resumption for creative folks. They need to, again, remind themselves that they matter. And let's say that then they hold that intention of mattering. Then two things have to happen. They're easy to say, not easy to do, but they're easy to say. You then have to align your thoughts with that intention, and you have to align your actions with those with that intention. Yeah. The aligning the thoughts is very important. Folks are not thinking thoughts that serve them as a rule. Yeah. And because we're tricky creatures, we very easily deceive ourselves. And the ways we talk ourselves out of doing our writing, all kinds of ways, but the, the two most prominent ways that we talk ourselves out of doing our writing are by saying, I'm too tired and I'm too busy. Mm -hmm. Those yes. are things we say. So we have to notice that those are not thoughts that are serving us. We're the only ones who can notice them. Nobody else is in our head to do the noticing. We have to notice. Then we have to dispute them. We have to say, I'm tired, but I can write for 20 minutes. And then as yeah. step three, we need to insert some kind of global affirmation all the time, like, I'm perfectly fine, or I mean to do this, or this is my intention, or I'm doing the next right thing, or some some phrase that signifies that, that you understand that this is your job and, and you have to organize your thoughts in ways that serve you. Because if, if you don't, you're unlikely to show up to the work. Yeah. I want to add something to the list of thoughts that the the stories we tell ourselves about our creative work that are not helpful. It's something that I hear from writers all the time and also one I've really struggled with. And I think this could potentially be generational, possibly. But one thing I hear really often is nobody's ever going to read this. So like the idea that because someone worries they might not get a traditional publishing contract or they might not publish it on a really popular platform or they might not ever have a million people reading their blog. Mm -hmm. This idea makes them feel like their words somehow matter less. Yep. And anyway, I'd love to hear your response to that well, too. I have a rather standard sort of lecture. Okay. <laughs> it was the lecture. <laughs> mini, mini lecture for, for clients when they say that. And that is, I, I remind them of the turn of the century, the turn of the 19th, 20th century avant-garde artists, the, the Picassos and Brocks. They had a phrase and that was they wanted an audience of one. Hmm. And what they meant by that was they weren't sure that anybody was going to understand cubism or what they were doing. And if even one person understood them, that would be sufficient. Now, they didn't mean that. They had big egos. They were very narcissistic, and they wanted an audience of billions. <laughs> but still, the phrase captures something. In yeah. real life, if one other person responds to what we're doing, that ought to count. Yes. So what, what I'm trying to do with clients is sell them on the idea that not only do they matter, but that small interactions, small in, in quotation marks, small interactions have to matter. Yes, they want to be preparing their Nobel Prize speech, of course. And yes, they want a bestseller, but, but they also might do well with what Virginia Woolf called an echo. Maybe just another person saying, boy, that, that mattered to me a little bit. Yeah. That has to count. So you can see I have I have my wrap here. I have my little lecture. <laughs> you do. It's beautiful too. It makes me think of a couple of things. Number one, uh, you know, having published publicly several pieces of work myself, 
the the numbers that you think will make you feel satisfied, and I, I imagine you'd agree with me on this, they don't really ever do for you what you think they're going to. It's like, oh, you sold 25,000 copies of this book. It always feels like it wasn't enough. And yet the letter that I get in the mail or in my inbox that says, I read your book, it it saved me. You know, I, I've read it five times and every time I read it, I, you know, I just hold your words so dearly. Those types of responses really do more to satisfy me as an artist and to keep me going than, than the numbers, which, you know, some people might think that they were big numbers. That, but that, I entirely agree. That's absolutely true. And if you've never gotten one of those, you may not actually understand that they exist or what they will do for you. So mm. that's another thing that I will say to clients is, you know, you may not, you may not have had the small successes that are actually big successes to understand how big those small successes are. Yeah. So keep working, keep plugging away, keep showing up. And when you get one of those emails, you're going to be surprised about how marvelous they feel, how amazing yeah. they feel. I remember I was, I was, I've been with my wife for 43 years now. Wow. But before then, I was dating a woman who was a poet, and she had no particular successes, but she would she would go go around the San Francisco poetry, live poetry circuit. And one day I was there, one day after a poetry reading, somebody came up to her and said, you know, you're a real poet. And that kind of saved her life, not just wow. saved her writing career. She was probably going to keep writing poetry. But that never left her as a more powerful affirmation, just something wonderful. Yeah. What can a poet expect? You know, 17 yeah. copies sold? You, you can't, can't be about yeah. numbers. It has to be about a response like that. Totally. Which, you know, that's the other thing that this brings to mind for me. I hadn't put this together until you started talking about this. But what really gets in the way of great art is ego and also in a way, what drives us to to produce our art or to put it out in the world is a little bit of ego. And so so we have to contend with that as artists, that we've got this ego that we know is present and it's working and it's part of who, you know, it's part of who we are as a human being yeah. and also as an artist. And we also have to find a way to sort of get it to shut up and go away for a bit so that we can get yeah. our work done. And I, I often describe that as the, the dance, the dance of attachment and detachment, because I think mm. I'm not a Buddhist. I don't believe in detachment only. I think attachment has meaning too. By that, I mean, it's fine to have ambitions for our work or desires for our work or hopes for our work or goals. All of that is attachment, which means pain's coming. If you attach, then pain is coming. But we need to attach because I think that's the motivational juice. We we care about the thing. Then we have to detach. We need to grow up and not attach to outcomes. And the, the metaphor or analogy I often use is if you are in a gloomy place with, you know, a long winter and you've been dreaming of a sunny vacation, it's fine to dream of it. Why not dream of it? That may be what's buoying up your spirits the whole winter. But if when your plane is descending in Jamaica, it's raining, you have to immediately figure out how you're going to have a great rainy day vacation. Yeah. yeah. Or, else, or else you will experience an awful lot of pain and disappointment. So it was fine to dream of the of the sunny vacation, but then if your book sells three copies, you have to move on to the next book. Yes, which actually, you know, again, I didn't think of this until you were talking, but it, the uh, detachment alone is easier 
than attachment and detachment because you have to learn the navigation between the two. You have to decide that my work matters. I'm, I'm hopeful that, you know, that it's going to touch a lot of people. And then you also have to be able to let that go when you publish the book and it only sells 10 copies. Exactly. And you can't see this because we're not doing video, but often when we're talking about a thing like this, I'll have my hands up in the air apart, sort of describing a bookcase on a bookshelf, that kind of image of hands apart. And so I think what we're after is a body of work. Of course, we need to attach to the thing that's directly in front of us, but we want to be thinking about a body of work and we want to understand the realities of process. Most, Most creative folks will say it'll go in one ear and out the other. Of course, I, I, I believe in the creative process and I honor the creative process. They don't mean it, though. They don't want to work on a novel for two years that doesn't work. Who wants that? Yeah. yeah. That's the process. And I have to keep reminding clients that only a percentage of what they do will work. Yes. A small percentage will be brilliant, 3%. <laughs> right. 38% will be pretty good. And I'm making up numbers, you know, 22% will be okay. 40% will be rotten. We have to live with these numbers. Yeah. You know, how many of Bob Dylan's thousand songs are excellent? 28, Mm -hmm. maybe 32 are wonderful. And then there are 969 that are completely ordinary. Even geniuses have a huge percentage of work, create a huge percentage of work that's ordinary. It's very hard for creative people to think of this on their own as soon as I say it, they get it. Totally. But but they don't want to be thinking about it quite on their own. It's so true. Okay, I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about the connection between the creative process and mental health. Because I know you have a column in Psychology Today about the power of a daily practice for mental health. And this is a lot of what we teach at Find Your Voice, too. I, we work with a lot of authors who have publishing aspirations. But the thing that I say over and over again is the real gift of the writing process is how it will teach you about yourself. So can you talk about your experience with that? Let me go a little oblique on this. I don't believe there is a purpose to life. I believe there are only our life purpose choices. That is our decisions about what's important to us. If you agree, if one agrees, and that's the starting place, then you have to identify your life purpose choices or else you don't know what's actually important to you. Mm. You have to identify your life purpose choices, comma, and then you have to live them. What helps you live them is having a daily practice, and that's one of the reasons I wrote this book. But to circle back around to your thought or question, if you're not living your life purpose choices, maybe you unconsciously, subconsciously, or half-consciously know what they are, but you've never quite articulated them. If you're not living them, you will be less mentally healthy than if you are living your life purpose choices. For us, for writers, one of those is going to be writing. It's not the only thing that's important to us. Uh, As a a mother, you will know that's not the only thing that's important to you. But there are only about 20 or so, I would say, categories of things that are important to human beings, creativity being one of them, service, activism, relationships, family, career. We could name them. They're nameable. And then we have to get to them. So that's the long-winded way of saying the reason that getting to our writing supports our mental health, even while being a difficult thing and often demoralizing us, the reason it supports our mental health is that living our life purposes supports our mental health and our writing is one of our life purposes. 
So with that in mind, do you, would you say that everybody has something to benefit from a practice of writing, even those people who may not immediately self-identify as a creative person or someone who doesn't identify as a writer? I don't have really an answer to that. I have sort of have a proof is in the pudding belief about life. And that is that if you experiment with writing and discover that it's valuable, then it's valuable. Yeah. And if you experiment with writing and discover that it isn't particularly valuable, then it isn't. I don't think there's anything magical about writing. You might be a cinematic person or a, or a music person or some other kind of sure. person, not a word person, or, or, or don't need any of these things particularly. Yeah. I do think the experimenting is important. I call, I call that seizing meaning opportunities. That is, writing might be a meaning opportunity for everyone, but that's only a maybe. And it, I think it's wonderful to run those experiments. I think that's a great kind of daily practice for a lot of creative folks or would-be creative folks is to have an experimental create, creativity practice yeah. where, where they're not committed to the thing. They're just trying it out. Very I love true. that. It's very true for painters. I often, I often want them to, whatever it is they're painting, if they're not happy with their current style, if maybe they're, they're doing super realism in the back of their mind, they, they'd love to try abstract expressionism, but they have certain prohibitions against doing that internally. Well, I've got to get them experiment. I've got to get them their arm moving. If they're doing photorealism, they're doing these tiny little brushstrokes. And, yeah. and I've got to get them moving their arm in a gestural way, etc. So that experimentation is, to my mind, a really important aspect of living one's life purposes. I love that so much. It, what it does is it lifts the pressure around the writing process. Because when one of the things that I find so often happens with people is we have this idea about writing in our culture that it's this really sort of lofty activity that only certain people are qualified to do. And so then there are all kinds of people who feel they have something to say, but who count themselves out as writers because they think, well, I don't have a degree from such and such university, or I don't have really like, I've never, you know, I'm not great at grammar or whatever it is, whatever list of qualifications they think yep. that they're lacking. And so this idea of experimentation just opens the door for anyone to say like, I could try this practice. And if I feel drawn to it, then, or if it feels helpful to me, then, you know, then I'm allowed to include myself in this group of people who use it. I, th I was started thinking immediately of just before quarantine started, I bought my husband this, he and I went together to do this painting class. It was just the two of us and the instructor, but we like, you know, I'm, I would classify myself as probably the worst painter alive, but we just followed the instructions and painted this little like flamingo thing. And <laughs> I walked away. it was such a fun experience to do together. And I walked away and I was like, that was actually really soothing and yep. interesting and fun. And I feel like I'm actually shocked at how well this thing turned out that we can approach writing like that too. We can approach any creative act like that. Yeah. And, and when, when I bring up this idea of experimentation, especially would-be writers love it. It doesn't feel too onerous or too scary. And then if I ask them, and, and, and we talk about the idea of daily practice, about how it would be good if they would try it every day to build some muscles there, that's fine. They buy that one. And then if I ask them, how, how much time do you want to spend each day on this experimental writing practice? This is this is kind of shocking to me, but almost always my client will pick the same number, twenty minutes. Wow! And, and I think that I think they pick that number because they know that if they pick a larger number, they're going to disappoint themselves. Sure. I think they maybe have tried in the past, tried to set those. I'm going to write for two hours. I'm going to write for a thousand words, or I'm going to write seven pages, or something. 
and failed at that. And so this time they don't want to fail at it. They're actually taking, by saying 20 minutes, they're actually taking themselves and their life more seriously than if they said some, you know, romantic eight hour writing stint kind of thing. Yeah. You know, what's so fascinating to me about that number too, is all of the data around writing and the ability of writing to create positive change in our life says that if you write for 20 minutes a day for four days in a row, (laughs) that you see the measurable effects of writing in your life. So it's interesting that the data is showing 20 minutes is the amount that we need. It's it's so interesting. And by the way, just parenthetically, this is important for writers. I do try to sell the idea that that writing practice be a morning writing practice, that it'd be Mm. the first thing you do each day. And I explain to folks that there are a number of reasons. Some of them are the obvious ones that if just as a daily practice, it's a good thing. But as a morning practice, two big reasons for it being the first thing you do. One is that you get to make use of your sleep thinking. Most people don't realize that they think while they sleep. Everybody knows they yes. dream while they sleep. In, in REM sleep, you dream, but they don't really realize that in, in non-REM sleep, you think. And if you wake a you know, a poet up in non-REM sleep, she'll be writing poetry or a mathematician, she'll be solving a math puzzle or something. Well, if we turn to our writing first thing, then we get to make use of that sleep thinking. And then we get that experience that writers understand, but only rarely get, which is experience of taking dictation. Because we've already had, Mary and Jane have already had the conversation in chapter three during the night. And now we just have to get, get the conversation down as quickly as we can. So making use of that sleep thinking is a big deal. It can add as much as two hours of creative work to your life or creative time to your life for free. Yeah. But if you turn to the new day, you lose that. The second you start to think about, eh, should I have a bagel or bran flakes or what's yeah. it all about, you're done for. You lose your train of thought. That's one huge reason. And the other is the existential reason. And that is if you do something real first thing, if you make some meaning first thing each day, the rest of the day can be half meaningless and you're less likely to get depressed. Yeah. It's important to do a real thing first thing each day. So I I like to sell and even oversell the idea of a morning writing practice. I think for most writers, it's about the only way they're ever going to get their writing done is to have their writing be both daily and also first thing each day. Yeah. It's really, that's really important. There's all kinds of brain science that I teach too that supports why why to, to write first thing in the morning, but I really love the way that you said it. I think this is so true. It resonates with me as a writer that if we make meaning first thing in the day, we can have a lot of meaninglessness happen the rest of the day and we can cope with it. So not to belabor on this point too long, but I do want to throw this in there because, um, because I'm a new mom and because this is the feedback I get from almost every writer that we work with, who's a, a woman, especially, I do think this is a gendered issue is the first thing that they do in the morning is has to do with their kids. Of course. They wake up to their children. Do you have any practical feedback, thoughts, insight for someone who, you know, is in a season where they either have really young kids or their kids wake them up first thing in the morning? No, it, it's, it's the simple get to the writing as soon as you can. Mm-hmm. It, it has to be something like that. It can't be that you can ignore the kids. The kids get, I mean, the kids get older. I do absolutely demand of clients that if the kid can make his own peanut butter and jelly sandwich yeah. to stop cooking a real breakfast <laughs> and as early as possible to allow kids to to watch you do the work so they are writing here I, i'm today as we're speaking i'm at one of our daughter's houses where we babysit three grandkids 
half, half um, a week four days a week and th- their ages are seven and four and four and they're all writing books already wow oh so, that makes me so happy you know because they they watch me they see my books they one of the one of the twin four-year-olds carries one of my books around because it's got like a little miniature headshot of me it's this little, like a little mini grandpa she's carrying around the room oh my gosh that's so cute so at so of course you know when your child's four months old that's one thing but when they start to get to be four four three i would say even as young as three it's about time to start training them that you have a creative life and they have a creative life and you can do things side by side yeah you know, and they, they can do their drawing and you could be typing away on your on your short story but no, yeah. you know, if you have infants, then then you just then you have to do a different sort of thing. And my favorite sure. is is to not scorn small increments of time. Mm, and by that I good. mean, you know, if you're awake enough and alert enough in the afternoon, and twenty minutes appear, you know, you could take a nap, or you could do some more laundry, you know, or you could check your email, or you could work on your novel for twenty minutes. Mm-hmm. And Good that's, that's reasonable. Most new moms, most, and I was the house husband, I was the dad to our daughter. So, so even new dads, if, if whoever's watching the kids has a decision to make about whether to try to get to the creating each day or not. Yeah, that's great. Okay. Taking it all the way back to the beginning of our conversation, the difference between discipline and devotion, and then also this idea in your new book, The Power of a Daily Practice. I'm wondering if you have some practical tips that you can give to people who are listening who are wanting to experience more of that sense of devotion than the sense of, I guess what I'm getting at is more of a sense of I get to do this creative work than I have to do this creative work. Well, the way back in is, is what we chatted about earlier, and that's to, to remember what you love. I think to, to I think that's really important to visualize yourself at four or five or six or seven and what a darkened theater meant if, if you were growing up in an age where there's still darkened theaters or you know or what listening watching Swan Lake meant or whatever it was that moved you to you know go back in time in memory in a visualization to remind yourself about how important that was to you. And how important that still is to you. Now, I'm going, to, I'm going to say a kind of intellectual thing here, and that is for the last hundred years of language analysis, we've found ways to deconstruct words like truth, beauty, and goodness so that they hardly have any meaning anymore. But for the 19th century artists, that phrase, truth, beauty, and goodness, really meant something. Solzhenitsyn, in his Nobel Prize-winning speech, reminds us that Dostoevsky said that truth, beauty, and goodness would save the world, and he, Solzhenitsyn, still agrees, even after Stalin. I think we all still believe that, that even though we can deconstruct those words and make nothing out of truth and nothing out of beauty and nothing out of goodness, I still think that phrase, truth, beauty, and goodness, resonates within us. And that's our affirmation. That's maybe our way back into understanding why we do this sloggy work. Mm. Is that truth, beauty, and goodness matter? Beautifully, beautifully said. What does the writing life look like for you personally right now? And also what keeps you coming back to the writing process again and again? Well, the coming back is that sense that I've said of life as a mission. Even very young, so I grew up, I was born right after World War II. I grew up in a 
I would say Orthodox neighborhood in the sense it was both Orthodox Jewish and Orthodox Catholic. Those those were the the make that was the makeup of my Brooklyn neighborhood. Mm. And growing up, just about everything I witnessed felt like humbug to me. <laughs> it just did not make sense to me that there could be a God who cared if you if you if you had cheese and pastrami on the same plate that he was taking an interest in that, or that he cared if you covered your head or cared. I didn't, I didn't buy it. So I've been in this oppositional place for 70 years or so of being that boy in the crowd saying the emperor has no, no, no clothes. This is manifested in lots of ways, most especially as I'm an advocate of what's called critical psychiatry, where we don't believe in the current mental disorder paradigm of diagnosing and treating mental disorders. That's a mouthful, of course, yeah. But that's what keeps coming. That's what keeps me coming back to the writing, is that the underlying issues and causes still matter to me, and they will continue to matter to me because I know that the humbug affects hundreds of millions of people, especially kids. There are so many millions of kids, so to speak, diagnosed with so to speak ADHD, who ought yeah. not to be diagnosed with that. They ought not to be diagnosed with ODD, oppositional defiant disorder, because they like to say no. There should not be a direct link between saying no and being chemicalized. It shouldn't happen. Yeah. So I'm passionate about um, the injustices I see, and I'm going to keep writing about them. Um, <laughs> yes. I was going to say till till my arm keeps moving, but, I, but I'm reminded of Matisse, who then started doing you know collages when he had... Uh, Cut cutouts when he had arthritis. So maybe, <laughs> maybe nothing will stop me. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's really beautiful. So what keeps you coming back to the writing is that you're passionate about helping people create the sense of purpose in their lives. Do you, do you think we have a crisis of purpose in our, in our world right now? Sure. We've had it for, it actually coincides with the rise of science, which is not to say science is a bad thing. <laughs> it's just to say yeah. that science has helped us really understand that we don't matter. Mm. We are just excited matter that the universe could create because it could do it. And that something like COVID-19 can get rid of people in the blink of an eye. We're just not that important. Yeah. And, but we've taken that lack of cosmic importance to mean that we shouldn't be important to ourselves. That that's, that's the place where we failed ourselves is we've gone from a truth that the universe doesn't care about us to a falsehood that we shouldn't care about us. Yeah, that that's actually, it's such a powerful concept because I think what you're saying, and this is just really taking everything you've said in the last 40 minutes and boiling it down. I'm putting words in your mouth, but you can tell me if I'm wrong. You know, that if we're looking for our purpose to come from out there, like it's this thing that we have to go discover or find that we're going to find ourselves disappointed over and over again. But if we decide that we want that we believe it's possible to create purpose from within, then that can be the very thing that both calls us back to our creative work. And it can also be the thing that gets us out of bed every morning to keep doing the life that we're doing. That was it. Exactly. You did. You, okay. you, you didn't put words in my mouth. You, maybe you took words from my mouth. But that, that, was, that, was, <laughs> okay, that was exactly it. Absolutely. Well, it's beautiful, Eric. It's such a great, I feel motivated too, as I'm listening to this conversation, as I'm listening to you speak, 
to continue coming back to my own creative work and reminded of the fact that no one can make meaning out of my life except for me, which is really, I think, I believe that's the power of the writing process is that it teaches us to make meaning of our lives. So thank you so much for sharing with us. Thanks for being with us today. Where can we get a copy of your book? When is it, when is it officially available? The Power of Daily Practice is out and around. Um, you can get it at a, all the usual spots, Amazon and all other such spots. If you want to know more about what I do, you can come visit me at ericmazel.com. That's E-R-I-C-M-A-I-S-E-L.com. You can also always drop me an email to ericmazel at hotmail.com. Amazing. Thank you, Eric. You're very welcome. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Find Your Voice podcast. We hope this inspires you to pick up a pen and start finding the words that will change your life, your community, and your world. If you liked what you heard today, share with a friend, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And if you haven't already, check out our website, findyourvoice.com. Subscribe to our Monday Motivation for free and get inspiring writing prompts in your inbox each week. Until next time, happy writing.